Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Our guest today on the Resilient Surgeon podcast is Dr. Brian Little, professor and senior fellow in people analytics at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Brian is a world-renowned expert on personality and how our personalities so profoundly influence our experience of the world, our experience of others, and how it can dramatically impact our well-being. Our ability to be our best selves as much of the time as possible is determined to a large extent by four major contributing areas. The first is our daily health habits and routines like sleep, diet, exercise, and meditation. The second is having a real sense of purpose in life derived from doing something that you really enjoy and care about. The third is feeling valued and connected with others at work and at home. And the fourth, topic of today's podcast is self-awareness. As I have learned from Brian, our personality has a huge impact on our wellness and how our life may unfold over time. And awareness of our personalities can serve as a sort of divining rod, if you will, to help us navigate our way to a life of meaning and fulfillment. Knowing what makes us tick helps us to utilize our strengths to our own personal benefit but it also allows us to utilize our unique personality to make meaningful contributions to others at work and at home. For example, one of the scales in the Big Five personality test is agreeableness, which is a measure of conflict avoidance and ability to get along with others. Higher scores in agreeableness may make you a pleasant person to be around, but it can also lead you to say yes to things that you internally do not want to do which I have to admit is an old habit of mine. And this can lead to resentment and to being overloaded with activities that are a burden, which of course can contribute to burnout in the long run. Brian obtained his PhD in personality psychology from the University of California, Berkeley. And since that time has devoted his academic career to the study of personality, especially the big five personality assessment currently the most scientifically studied and validated personality assessment available. His journey has taken him from being a Commonwealth Commonwealth Scholar at Oxford, an inaugural fellow at Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, and from 2010 to 2021 to the Cambridge University where he was a research professor in psychology. But Brian is also a master educator while at Cambridge, he developed and taught an incredibly popular course on personality and well being for the executive MBA program at the Cambridge Judge Business School. And he's received major awards for his teaching throughout his career at Carleton, McGill, 
And for three consecutive years from 2002 to 2004, he was elected a favorite professor by the graduating classes at Harvard University, an incredible accomplishment. Beyond his academic and teaching accomplishments, Brian is an accomplished author of three beautifully written popular books on personality. The first, Me, Myself, and Us, The Science of Personality and the Art of Well-Being, was an Amazon bestseller. And his other two are Who Are You Really? The Surprising Puzzle of Personality. And the third, Personal Projects Pursuit, Goals, Action, and Human Flourishing. Brian has also given a master TED Talk, which I highly encourage you to watch, called Who Are You Really? This talk has been viewed on YouTube and the TED platform over 20 million times. And in addition, he's delivered over 800 presentations on personality and well-being to diverse audiences around the world. It was an honor and a delight to talk with Brian about such an important aspect of our ability to be our best selves. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS cardiothoracic surgery ebook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. And it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Well, today I am honored to be speaking with Dr. Brian Little, a psychologist who has devoted his entire career to understanding the role of personality in our lives and in particular, how personality can have profound implications for how our lives unfold and for our ability to flourish in life. Dr. Little was born in British Columbia, Canada, and he actually grew up in a house that his father built by his bare hands, except for the electrical part. And interestingly, and I'm curious about this, he was also a singer at the age of two, apparently had a wonderful soprano voice, uh, and they had him on the stage uh, at the age of two singing in his little soprano voice. Unfortunately, per his words, puberty destroyed his soprano voice, and he became an utterly mediocre baritone. But what's most interesting about that is that Dr. Little is a profound introvert, and this is by his own admission. So, but this practice or his personal project of singing on the stage set the stage for him to be uh, three years in a row voted the best lecturer at Harvard University where he was working at the time. His work in personality has been featured in Time Magazine and his TED Talk in 2016, which I highly recommend everyone watch for two reasons. It's interesting from the personality standpoint but he also has a sensational sense of humor and it's just a wonderfully entertaining talk. But that talk in 2016, Who Are You Really? The Puzzle of Personality has received 15 million views. So Brian, welcome to the Resilient Surgeon podcast and it's a real honor and a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. 
You know, just to start out, could you kind of give us a glimpse into your academic and personal journey journey down the lane of personality science so we know where you're coming from? Yeah, you, you've covered some of the core aspects uh, really well. I'm, I'm Canadian uh, and um, did my undergraduate work uh, at what was then the fledgling University of Victoria in Victoria, British Columbia, uh, and then went to Berkeley uh, for my PhD. Um, right at the time when the revolution was occurring. Uh, that was in 1964. And so um, I was seen by um, my parents as causing the student rebellion at, uh, at Berkeley. I, I was ex extremely interested in it, but I demur from taking claim for having anything to do with its success. And um, I, I was passionate about neuropsych and neuroscience generally, when I left University of Victoria, which was um, a leader in child neuropsychology. And um, just before I accepted to go to Berkeley, I had received, um, I was looking in the, in the library for the Neurotaxic Atlas of the Brain. And it was a big sucker of a book. And I was, reaching up for it, and there had been an inadvertently misfiled copy of a book by George Kelly called The Psychology of Personal Constructs. And I thought, oh, I've heard of this from one of my lectures. I opened it up, sat down, and many hours later, uh, I switched my field from neuropsych to personality psychology. And um, it took a bit of convincing at the people at Berkeley that I could switch because it was much easier for me to be in the other program. And there were sort of 47,000 applicants for the personality and clinical program, but mm -hmm. uh, they managed, they didn't want to offend the Canadian student. They're very concerned with international relations. So I managed to squeeze in. Uh, but then I went um, through the, um, the whole business of the excitement of, of that academic and um, social change um, colossus, it was extremely stimulating. And for a more introverted person, especially so. And so I took advantage of an offer from one of my professors to sponsor me uh, for a Commonwealth scholarship to go to Oxford University. And so I went to Oxford, um, it was supposed to be for a couple of years, ended up teaching there for a while, eventually got my PhD after many years at Berkeley. Um, after investing myself in teaching, which I just mm -hmm. adored and mm -hmm. took a lot of time away from other things. And then uh, spent many years in Canada uh, where my wife was a professor at Curtin University, as was I for many years. And then at um, the age of, I guess, 59, which is about the same year you had some interesting things happening to you. Yes, in yes. In terms of uh, thinking about your life and its trajectory, um, I applied for and won a fellowship, uh, the first um, to go to the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard, where um, there was um, enormous excitement about the field of personality psychology. And um, it was a very stimulating atmosphere. And um, I spent uh, several years uh, teaching at Harvard and uh, eventually um, coming back to 
Canada for family reasons. Um, and, and then after that, went to Cambridge University. So it was Cambridge the Elder and Cambridge the, the Younger. Um, spent a few years there. And now I am in the garden looking at the flowers, um, <laughs> watching the delightful birds and other little things that you and your own experience have found deeply meaningful and avoiding yeah. giving interviews. That's basically what I've been doing. And I, I can, I, a testimony to that, I was able somehow to convince him to be on this podcast, which I am so grateful for. So yeah. $100,000 was very, very helpful. It, it helps, doesn't it? It yeah, does absolutely. help. Absolutely. <laughs> and thanks to the SDS and Jen for uh, sponsoring this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's start out with, I, I think it would be very helpful to get some clear kind of definitions and conceptual elements in place for our listeners so we can, you know, talk about the things afterwards. So what we're talking about here in personality, specifically with respect to your work is, of course, the big five personality test. And, and if you could talk about what that test is, the five ocean components, and, and also maybe uh, mention in, in some passing other tests like the Myers-Briggs, and I'm not asking you to go into that in any detail, but at least, mm -hmm. you know, the, your, your perspective about the big five relative to other types of personality tests and, and, what, sure. and what that means. Sure. Uh, let me say right at the outset that the big five, in many respects, subsumes the Myers-Briggs and most mm -hmm. people in the field of personality research uh, are not using uh, the, the Myers-Briggs. It's still a, a big force in, in uh, industrial and personnel psychology, but not among the personality scientists. Um, and partly because the big five subsume it. And actually, as you found in some of your own research, um, the extroversion introversion dimension is very robust across those two measures. But the other components are, don't have as much predictive efficacy as we would want them to have. So I'll focus my comments on the big five. Yeah. And, and when you say other components, you mean other components of the Myers-Briggs. Correct. Yeah. 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 Uh, the sensing and the, th yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, but all of the components of the big five are consequential for outcomes when it comes to human flourishing. And I'll just give a couple of examples. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. I, I think um, so. It, Maybe it's first, uh, first, Brian, could you just talk about ocean, and so you, you so we know yes. what the five things are, and then, yeah, I was and just then talk do about that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so O stands for openness to experience, in contrast to more conventional, closed ways of saying things. Don't disturb me with new facts, new insights. I'm very comfortable with the status quo. Mm -hmm. The open to experience people are um, more likely to be highly creative. Uh, creativity is, um, is one of the consequences of having that ability to use your peripheral vision and to uh, dissociate from that which is right in front of you and orient to that which is more on the periphery, the unexpected, the exciting, and, mm -hmm. and so on. And those who score high on openness to experience are more likely um, to do well, uh, particularly in fields that require um, innovative thinking and, and uh, not as well 
in fields that require correct answers to traditional questions. Mm -hmm. um, that may actually bore a person who is high in openness to experience. Uh, the same old, same old is not that exciting uh, to individuals who are high in openness to experience. Um, on the other hand, C for conscientiousness um, is associated with those who are able to um, get things done, get them done on time, um, engage with tasks so that they're well organized. Um, and the implications of that trait of conscientiousness are really profound because um, they not only handle uh, or predict the things we would expect them to predict, such as um, grades in school or, or um, your uh, capacity to, be, to advance through higher levels in your organization or profession. Conscientiousness is a very good predictor of that. That's not surprising because they're reliable. You can depend on them. They get things done. They're timely. Right all the good virtuous things that we would expect of a responsible professional. Um, those in, in um, surgery, including thoracic surgeons, are very high in conscientiousness, as we would expect them to be. Right. Um, what we may not have expected is the, the benefits that accrue to those who are high in conscientiousness with respect to health, um, with respect to the prediction of um, age of death, mortality. Um, those high in conscientiousness are healthier. They also happen to be happier. That, that's a more complicated uh, point. Um, and they, um, they are likely to have much healthier lives. And I think the reason for this is, is the capacity and the disposition for highly conscientious people um, to adhere to um, uh, medical regimens. Uh, when their doctor says you've got to lose weight, they lose weight. Um, when they say cut back on the uh, on on these fats, they they make a note of it. <laughs> they put it in their shopping list. Yeah. They do things. They have projects that advance things that matter to them. One of which, of course, is their health. Um, and so the the stuff on longevity is quite stunning, Michael. They they live um, appreciably longer. And um, I think that it is probably this, um, this uh, ability to stick to, to regimens that are specified for them. The E for extroversion um, is next to neuroticism, which is the last one. Extroversion is the most studied of the various big five dimensions. It, it's more complex because it has a couple of, at times, antagonistic subcomponents to it. Uh, and we'll get into this later in the interview, I, I, I hope. But basically, the extrovert is primarily motivated to seek out rewarding experiences. And so, in a way, they're like open individuals, but they're open primarily to reward and reward in the future. Uh, so that these are things that are going to be um, something that has um, uh, highly motivating um, claims on their daily behavior. They, I, they, they seek out stimulation 
And neurophysiologically, they seem to be under aroused in the neocortex. And it's a broad generalization. So right. I, I won't go into the specificities of what areas, um, but um, they need stimulation. They need stimulation uh, in order to get up to an optimal level where they can carry out the tasks. Now, they can do this by acting upon the environment. So they can be um, uh, constantly busy engaging with things, particularly other individuals who themselves cause a spike in arousal level. Um, but they can also do it um, neurochemically. Uh, they can do it biologically through the ingestion of stimulants. And uh -huh. you find that those who score high on extroversion are more likely to take certain kinds of drugs particularly stimulant drugs. They, their performance is improved when they take caffeine. Um, it gets complicated because it depends on the time of day and all that. But basically the ability to benefit from caffeine con contrasts with the introverts who are more likely to have their performance uh, degraded after the ingestion of the equivalent of right. two and a half cups of coffee. It looks like you're going to have some coffee. Is that right? What's that? No, I said it looks like you're going to have some coffee right now because I I know I noticed when I mentioned coffee, you were sort of reaching out. Um, <laughs> no, but, uh, I, I you know I'm not. I have already had my big big cup of French roast okay. cream in it. All right, and I I mean I can't. That baby is my lifeline. You know. Yeah. No, I was looking at at the extroversion thing in my own scores thinking about this. So I was going to ask you a question, but continue. I, I didn't mean oh, to interrupt. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. I, yeah. I, I just, you have very expressive eyes. And well, so, yeah. What I was actually reflecting on is, you know, I was quite a juvenile delinquent, as you know, uh, when I was I, younger. I and, and of course, you know, uh, I and all my buddies, we all took various drugs and stuff. And, and of course, this is an anecdote of probably no value to anybody, but I loved amphetamines, all right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I loved them. And my, my extroversion score is 98th percentile. And I could not fathom why uh, my friends like marijuana so much. I, I mean, I just never liked oh, it. I hated it. Oh, that makes so much sense, doesn't it? I, I hated it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, this is profoundly different in that way, yeah. yeah. So just a testimony to the caffeine notion, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that, is, that is fascinating. Um, now, one can speculate, and there's some evidence of this, that alcohol has the opposite effect. Now, um, so when you're, if you were ingesting um, a couple of beers after a work week, the extrovert in the group, um, rather than being under the table, is more likely, uh, rather than dancing on the table in convivial delight, is more likely to be under the table. Um, exactly, yeah because they're under the optimal level of arousal, which is here, if I can think them. Um, they're under that. Alcohol is a, a, ignoring some delayed effects. Alcohol is a CNS depressant, and consequently, they are way, whereas the introvert, who's up here, has something that a CNS depressant comes down to this optimal level where they can actually create the illusion of effectiveness. It's so fascinating because it, it, this plays out exactly. I mean, I I enjoy a glass of wine or two at the most, but for me, it just it just it 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 sedates me. I, I don't like the feeling of it, you know, too much. Of it. it does not get me all jacked up and excited. 
but my wife enjoys it on a more vigorous basis in terms of how it enlivens her uh, much more yes. than me. And she's yeah. clearly an introvert. Yeah. 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 I would drink with your wife. Yeah. And the biology of this is so real, you know, it's so real. Yeah. It, it really is. Uh, yeah. You know, that said, that said, we're talking about reliable effects that are fairly small. Uh, right. And so, you know, when we're talking about optimal performance, um, sure, whether you have caffeine in your system is important, but there are other more more basic things. But, of course. Uh, of course. But, and I always worry when I'm giving interviews about this that a headline in a popular press article is going to be, be introvert should drink more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and, that's the danger of the social media and press. That's right. Isn't that's right. it? Yeah. Well, yeah, you can absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, now, we forgot, uh, we're, we're through the OCE. The A is agreeableness. And, and those who are high on agreeableness um, are great in groups. They are primarily motivated to avoid conflict. And, and because of that, they lubricate the groups they're, they're operating in. <laughs> in your case, maybe literally, yeah. they, um, they <laughs> are able, they, they don't want if one member of the surgical team is, um, is a little stroppy and, and um, a little too short with the others. Um, the, uh, the highly agreeable person will typically, for example, use humor as a, as a way of diffusing the conflict in the situation. And they're, so they're loved by other individuals. And that's, that's great. They may also be suckers for saying yes all the time to other individuals. And again, you've touched that, on that. that. Yeah, that was you've me. touched on that in, yeah. in some interviews yeah. I've heard you give. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, a highly agreeable person and and I, I'm with you. I'm highly agreeable, but also highly introverted. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's a dangerous thing, yeah. um, because uh, you hate to let people down. And if you're also conscientious, which I think both of us are, uh, yeah. then I I find that um, I just put so much pressure on myself to be there for others, not to disappoint them, that. Um, that you can get into difficulties and with, with life. Um, priorities start to slip. They're displaced by the immediate claim of a needful other. And, and so we have, um, we have difficulties with the agreeableness end of the continuum. And these are all normally distributed. So you've got right. highly agreeable people here, most are in the middle, and there's some who are highly disagreeable. The disagreeable ones, those very low on agreeableness scales in the big five, have some real problems. And it, remember when we used to talk about type A personality, right, right. The, the, the driven, the driven personality. It was that time pressure that we used to think was really, was really the the pathogen and risk for cardiovascular disease. It's not. It's it's not the time pressure. Um, in in the research that I've um, studied. Um, Rather, it is one component of disagreeable behavior, which is um, hostility. Hostility is the behavioral pathogen. And so if you happen to be a highly extroverted person who is going also a kind of person who says, go, 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 and your loving spouse to help you says, 
slow down, David. You're going to kill yourself. Ironically, you may be exacerbating by pissing him off precisely that thing that you wish to avoid. And so he's relaxing on the beach in, in, in Anguilla. And you say, you're going up to the office, you're going up to the hotel room to check your email, aren't you? Well, yeah, yeah, sit yeah. still. Sit down and sit still. Yeah. Yeah. Have yeah. you well, you it's tough. Well, this, you're you're talking about my life here, you know. Oh dear. <laughs> oh yeah. Because my agreeable score is 71st percentile, my extrovert is 98th percentile. I mean, I, I just it wasn't a problem for me, you know, just running like like crazy. But I got into the very trouble that you talk about, and that is the desire to not disappoint and and all the and then you know my compassion score is very high, so I care about others. So it leads me to be uh, sub, sub, uh, subordinate myself to yes. all sorts of things that turned out to be an, a challenge for me. And I, I had no idea. This is this is one of the key themes I, I think is so important here is that we, you know, in the world of, of, of the, of the, you know, uh, optimization of our biology and all this stuff that's coming at us these days, we, we just, we need to know more about ourselves so we can understand ourselves and not see what we're quote, not doing right as really more of a manifestation of just how we're wired to a certain extent and that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with you, but you need to understand these things. And this is a key reason why I wanted to talk to you today so that we, we don't feel like we're somehow weak or not measuring up or, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong with us. It's just, we're different. Yeah. And it, this, this provides for me a great space for compassion, for understanding other people and learning to kind of like see how they are. Does, does this make sense to you? Yeah. Very much so. And it also provides the ground for self-compassion. Yes, exactly. Which is, which exactly. is really crucial. And crucial. something that, that I emphasize a lot in, in, in my, my book. Yeah. Um, the, um, just to round out the big five, because it pushes the discussion to something that I think is, is, is quite fascinating. Um, the N of ocean is neuroticism. And the term itself has become pejorative, unless right. you're into a New York art scene where, you know, to be highly neurotic is, is a badge of honor. Yeah. You know? I right. suffer right. for my... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Whether, whether it is actually true neuroticism <laughs> or what I call pseudo-neuroticism, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'll leave that to others to discuss. Um, but... I've always felt that it would be better to call it sensitivity. I agree. Um, I agree. And, yeah. and to be highly sensitive is to have some danger thresholds that, that might be reached. And to be insensitive um, or dysfunctionally stable, <laughs> which we mm -hmm. might ironically mm -hmm. say on the other end, can also have adaptive, um, have problems for your adaptation, your adaptivity. Um, you know, it, it's a bit like the canaries um, in, in the old mines that the highly sensitive person, or if you wish, neurotic person, um, will often spot things going on in the, um, in the organization or the operating theater that others just don't see. They're right. 
oblivious to perturbations that may augur ill. Just as the extrovert is primarily motivated to seek out reward and positive things, the highly neurotic person, and especially the highly neurotic or sensitive introvert, are more likely to be sensitive to, very conscious of, and oriented to the um, negative possibilities, the danger. Mm -hmm. Dangerous. And, yeah, danger, exactly. And that accrues to the benefit of everybody. Um, you know, unless they wear you down with their anxiety, which can happen. But the insights. That you... I'm laughing because I've got personal stories about this. Yeah. Oh, I bet. I'd love to hear them. We, uh, we have, um, we draw from different fields, but I think the common human experience is that, that different people at different ends of the personality spectra can drive each other crazy. Um, yeah. And when you understand the genesis of that, when you understand the um, both the the physiological, but also the social contextual features that lead you to be the way you are, there is, as you say, much greater capacity for compassion. And, right. and upon reflection, if you have the luxury of musing about your life um, for self-compassion, but mm -hmm. the, the thing mm -hmm. is that how many of us have the luxury of being a house husband for, for yeah. a couple of years yeah. right. or having a sabbatical or deciding to retire early as I did and, yeah. and head down to, to Harvard and, and be so excited. It was, it was um, unbelievable. Right. One thing in the background other than personality is, is that I came from um, a very, uneducated family, I'm first generation. But both my parents were bright. They had to leave school in, in grade six, one from England, one from Ireland, and to work. And they had no choice in this at all, but right. they were absolutely enthralled with the notion of being able to come to Canada and have their kid go to university. Could be, Brian will never go to university, his sister would, uh, but Brian was, too busy having fun. And um, lo and behold, we both did. And um, it was the joy of their life. They, they moved in order to provide that. So if in my case, I was lucky enough to have a right. highly supportive family, I, I know you were not. And that was a rough, rough background context from which you emerged triumphantly. Uh, but it was much easier for me, Michael. And um, it meant that when I went to, to university, um, instead of feeling um, way out of it or anything like that, I was enchanted. Mm -hmm. you know, imagine mm -hmm. being able to sit and listen to these exciting yeah. things. And it went right back to when I, I don't think I was two, that's my sister claims that, I think I was four when I first started singing in public. Um, okay. <laughs> and what I keep my children tell me, that when I lecture, I'm singing. And what I want to do is to bring pleasure to people. Mm -hmm. And when I see people resonating to, to a song or resonating to a lecture, it brings me unbridled joy. Yeah. And yeah. I think that, um, uh, I think increasingly I'm becoming sensitive. One might say I'm becoming increasingly neurotic, but I'm <laughs> attending more 
to everything about me, not just the pleasant things, which I have a natural disposition to do, but also I think, <coughs> excuse me, to the real challenges, the realities of daily life and accepting them as right. things that we need to um, deal with, confront. And my own particular way of dealing with them is to develop a sense of humor with respect to. Um, yeah, and then you, I think, you have that in spades. You really do. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think the, the humor, I, I don't, I think life can be pretty unbearable if you it's don't hard. have the capacity yeah. to laugh. Yeah. 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 Not at others. <laughs> no, but at, at, our, at our humanity, really. I mean, that's just, you know, exactly. that's so much what humanity. a strange little species we are. Yeah, we are. And it's, <laughs> it's humorous, it's tragic, but it's, it's, it's yeah. quite the journey. Yeah. Yeah. And so, absolutely. You know, just on the neuroticism front, and I, I really like the sensitivity term much better. Yeah. Because the other one is kind of pejorative. But just in our marriage, Leanne, my wife and I, you know, she is highly sensitive. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, and I am not. My neuroticism score is seventh percentile, right? And so, you know, things roll off me like there's no tomorrow in general. You know, I've just got this. It's like, what, what's the big deal here? You know, but for seven her, she's, yeah, seven. I mean, I, I'm not a sociopath. I mean, my I just to redeem myself, my compassion score is 95th percentile. So there's some odd combination there, but I just want to redeem myself by stating that. But I, I was always like people getting so upset about things. It's like, what, why, 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 you know? But my yeah. wife, so I'm married to somebody who gets upset about a lot of things and she's yeah. very sensitive. And, and so, but to know this about her and she is that canary in the coal mine. So the, the challenge for me and all of the kids, frankly, was when do we got to pay attention to the, the concern that she has, you know? Is this a, is this a real fear? We got to be fearful here, you know? And so even last night, we had huge thunderstorms here in Minnesota. I mean, she is so anxious about tornadoes and everything else. And I'm kind of like, let's just go sit and enjoy it outside. It's not a big deal. And then, but I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I mean, Holy I need to be blind here to the risks, you know? <laughs> So, I mean, it literally just played out last night, you know, with the thunderstorm. Yeah. yeah, it's that beautiful swirling thing that's moving toward me. That, yeah, uh, all maybe this. I should be a bit worried. Yeah, it's so interesting. Let's go look at it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Smell the air. Boy, that ozone. <laughs> well, okay, so we've covered, you know, and you call it in your two books. Uh, I didn't mention your books, which I highly recommend oh, to people. Uh, yeah, me, myself, and us, and and I'm sorry, uh, the person, the other one, the first one, the the little primer on personality. That, that was the first one, and the second one was who are you really? Yeah, who are you really? I highly recommend it. They're beautifully written. They're very. These are not like academic tomes. They are very accessible, and you will learn a lot about about yourself and others in the books. But what the the th you know the three aspects of our ourselves that Brian talks about or that you talk about is you know the biogenic. And that's what we just covered, the big yep. five personality test. But then we have the sociogenic and also the idiogenic. And these are key features and personal projects. And can you kind of talk about the influence of the social world and then also your notion of idiogenic uh, yes. you know, personality traits or personal projects, which is so important? Yeah, thanks for raising that because 
often they're not raised when when they, people want to know their big five traits. Yeah. And then when we get into some of the real meat of what daily lives are like in terms of personality, it, it's seen as a bit more complex, which it is, but we're complex mm -hmm. creatures. Uh, and so um, I'll try not to get into undue complexity, but I, I think that we can almost look at this in terms of um, in which pursuits, <coughs> excuse me, do we feel most sincere, most authentic? And I think there are three kinds of authenticity. One is biogenic, which refers to the extent to which when engaged in an action, <coughs> excuse me, you, you are going against your first nature. So as a biogenically introverted person, uh, being at a, a wild and crazy party is a bit of a challenge to me. I have over the years learned to deal with that um, by um, interacting with people one-to-one -one when I can, which I love. Mm -hmm. What I don't like are group size, and most introverts are worse when it comes to group sizes of four or five or six. Um, and I think it's because we love the one-on-one -on -one conversations. And when you have a group size of four, five, or six, you, um, you end up um, detecting conflict or potential conflict between people in the group. And so that is the, the groups that don't invite two couples over for dinner, um, invite five couples over for dinner, because once you get beyond about group size 10, um, the, you can pair off with impunity. You can talk mm -hmm, to the right, person right. defending the others. And right. you know, people say, if you're introverted, how can you talk to 3,000 people? <laughs> Piece of cake. It's not a problem for me at all. Um, because um, I will zero on on one person and then right. one other person. Right. They're right. not interrupting me. If somebody yells out, you're full of crap, little. Yes, I will find it more, more stressful than somebody who's highly extroverted who would say, yeah, want to come out beer at you. Um, so I think that um, um, we adapt to various ways of coping with a mismatch biogenically between what we're called upon to do in our daily projects and our biogenic um, neurophysiological propensities. We can also be authentic though, in terms of not doing what feels right to me biogenically, but what ought I to be doing? Um, and here is where social- in, in, a, in a given circumstance. Correct. Yeah, um, yeah. But even maybe, Michael, it generalizes to, to um, a lifestyle. Lifestyle, yeah. A yeah. lifestyle where you are saying, um, I know this feels, I don't feel right. I, my arousal levels up so little tells me, or you know, I, in my gut, it doesn't feel right for me to do this, but I am a dutiful daughter or I am a Supreme Court judge and my role and my social commitments enjoin me to act in a way that I don't care about the biogenic cost. Right. I have to live according to the proscriptions and prescriptions that my, um, my culture the sociogenic influences on my life uh, demand or enjoin us to pursue. 
But there is a third, what I call idiogenic, and idio from the same root as idiosyncrasy, singular, personal. And here is where I wanted to change the whole direction of psychological assessment. Instead of giving people questions that they could answer and allow us to infer traits, I wanted us to see where people actually were in the quotidian, in the daily lives. What are you up to? What's going on? And if we adopt that somewhat credulous approach, as George Kelly admonished us to many years ago, um, where, you, where you once said, if you want to understand um, what a person is on about, ask them, they might just tell you. Um, mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that no, they may distort, they may present you know, as virtuous when it's not, but start with the credulous approach and then you can winnow out what is self-serving and so on through, through constructive empathetic dialogue. And that's what we do with, with personal projects. What are the things you're up to? And so when we actually look at the content of people's projects, there's some that virtually everybody seems to be engaged in in some form or other. Losing weight is a single most frequently invoked uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. project, um, somewhere between 10 and 40 pounds. Um, there's some that are utterly idiosyncratic. Be a better druid is one that I found quite mm-hmm. intriguing because mm-hmm. you know, be a druid is one thing, be a better druid. I don't know, do you hug the tree with greater um, a sense of intimacy? I, I'm, I'm not sure of that. The, when you list your projects and you get them rated on things like how much threat does this pose? How much joy do you get from it? How much control do you have on it? Who initiated it? Was it you? Or under the sociogenic uh, hypothesis, was it really a project that began with your mother, who said you've got to be more outgoing, Marcia? Right. And um, and so we have eighteen dimensions that we uh, assess your, your personal projects on. We look at the extent to which they impact each other, so that your project of losing weight may have a very positive impact upon your other project of um, keep healthy, but it may have a negative impact upon your project of spend more quality time with the kids. Because when you come home, you're out jogging immediately instead of um, sitting back and having fun outdoors with, with, with the kids. Um, and then there's a joint process where yeah. your projects and your, and your spouse's projects may be deliciously together, but they may be without either of you knowing it, they may yeah. be in conflict. And I think having this kind of discussion about the projects you're pursuing, not just what traits you have and what traits she has, but what are the projects that those traits shape in such a way that they're demanding ordeals or they're joyous, um, inventive accomplishments. And so that's what, that's the, approach I've taken over the last gulp 45 years in studying um, the, um, the field of personality. Traits are not fates. There are fates beyond traits, but they help begin a conversation, just as we did today, that it's really great to have a, a sense of five-fold dimensional um, set of, of parameters 
that enable us to recognize ourselves and recognize mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's great but mm-hmm. it's not the end of a conversation because otherwise right. people place others in pigeonholes and they don't understand that the the project that you see me being engaged in isn't just um my trait it may be something else for example you you may be um every weekend for the last six months you have been going to barbecues and parties in your neighborhood you're the you're the most congenial guy in the neighborhood and you go with your wife to all of these and people may ascribe to you the predicate um david is um is extroverted david may not be right david may have the personal project of helping his wife who he knows and she knows, but nobody else knows, is dying. And the greatest love of her life is to be with other individuals. And so he engages in this project that may be misconstrued as, oh God, he's such a, he loves this stuff. He loves such a it. loving, agreeable guy and he's extroverted, yeah. blah, blah, blah. You he's, can make all of these misconstruals, yeah. Exactly. And he yeah. is brokenhearted, but he's acting with integrity to advance a core project in his life, which is to help his wife to live out these um, few more months um, happy as she can be under the circumstances. So no, those I, are I, the, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. Now, these are the kind of subtle, but fundamentally human concerns that a project analytic approach opens up that I don't see as, as easily focused upon from a trait perspective. Right. And, and when you say trait, now we're talking about the relatively, and I don't know if I'm using the right terms now, relatively fixed traits of the big five personality profile. You know, yes. of course there's a, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, just to, to give it a personal example, which you'll tell me if it fits or not, but, you know, after uh, getting out of Hazelin for the narcotic addiction uh, prescription, you know, and deciding not to return to work, yeah. I mean, overnight I became a house husband. And yes. so now we're talking about a guy with an extroversion score of, of 98th percentile who's been running, you know, uh, like a jet plane for as long as I could remember. And, and I'm, I remember sitting on the couch thinking, oh, my God, what in the hell am I going to do with myself? Yeah. Yeah. Well, at the time, you know, uh, you know, my relationships were a little frayed at home, as one might imagine. Sure. And I just decided uh, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to I'm going to become a house husband f- for whatever period of time. And I'm going to repair the relationships and regain trust and all that stuff. And and so I just went all in on that. And I remember <laughs> my wife loves to garden. And I remember so well, okay, well, I'm going to go out and garden with her. You know, and I did that, you know, reluctantly previously. Yeah. Uh, I think that might be a, an understatement, but now <laughs> I found myself out there. All right. So it just, just, this is so funny how it plays out. So I'm out there and, and as an as example, I'm, you know, we're, she wants to put some sticks together. So she gets a little piece of leather rope and she starts tying them together. But I'm like my conscientious self and all this other stuff is, well, no, no, let's figure out how you actually lash them together. And I'll go in and watch a YouTube video. And it drove her, it drove her nuts. I mean, she didn't want me out there anymore, but never, 
<laughs> nevertheless, I mean, you see, but if you know these things, but so I, my <laughs> personal project was to repair the family. Yes. Take care of them. Yeah. And, and, and damn my extroversion, you know? And, and so it was really difficult, but, yeah. you know, I, I grew into it. I mean, I, I found ways to use my extroverted self by, you know, picking my daughter up, driving her home, cooking banana bread, you know, doing all these things, my energetic nature, and it worked beautifully. So the power that we have to induce these personal projects that can be, as you, as you note, so importantly, they mean something to us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Meaning is that is that correct? I mean, I'm I'm actually asking. Meaning is the fuel behind being able to quote be not authentic relative to your biogenic traits. Exactly right. You've got it exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and the that's a fabulous example of. It's uh, as perfect as it gets, in my opinion. Yeah. 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 Um, one of the studies, a series of studies that, that I think is really quite fascinating uh, on this topic shows that introverted people are very reluctant to um, get into the anticipation of a social event and they will often turn it down if it's a month from now, they'll think of an excuse not to, not to go to that barbecue, whatever it might be. But if they actually do go, they are more happy than they thought they would be. So there is a kind of, um, uh, well, Dan Gilbert, who you know, there's a kind yeah. of Gilbertian um, uh, <laughs> miswanting, as he calls it, that you, you think you, you won't be happy. And so you don't go. But if right. you were to have gone to get terribly seductive about it, you, you would probably be happy. Uh, right. And so one of the beauty, I talk about acting out of character. And um, so one of the things about acting out of character is that it allows you to advance a core project, like looking after my wife's needs in her mm -hmm. hour of need mm -hmm. or her month of, of need. Um, but it also advances your own repertoire and increases your yes. understanding and stretches you out stretches, of your comfort exactly. zone. And, yeah. you know, we often think of stretching you out of your comfort zone as being um, pushing the introverted person into more exploratory things. But as you've experienced in your own life, it also allows the more extroverted, agentic person to experience quietude and yeah. and the the delight of the subtle and that noting that that bird's call is exquisite and i'd never slowed down enough to to perceive that before and so no, acting out of character yeah. might be dismissed as being disingenuous but i think that it is not could be it could be that you're just a big fake but yeah. what i'm talking about are individuals who are not out acting out of character to be manipulative or narcissistic or anything like that at all, but, um, or Machiavellian. Um, right, right, but, right. But, but rather to, um, to highlight that often we act out of character in order to um, answer a higher need. For advance something that means something to us. That, yep. That's when it's authentic. 
I think so, yes. Is that accurate? Somebody from a highly sociogenic culture where everything that matters is the family, I think you can be entirely authentic if you subscribe totally to that. You're right. Um, right. And where you have, where you may find yourself very conflicted is if you come from such a culture, which are often Eastern cultures, and you come to North America, and all of a sudden you realize that there are other claims upon you that mm -hmm. say mm -hmm. you're more than your family, then conflict can arise. And right. it's a matter of negotiating the, um, the, the different meaning um, possibilities for you and, and, and developing new meanings. And um, it's an, a never ending process. And that's a stretch, and that's kind of the fun of living, in a way. I mean, if you... If yes. You, yeah, and what, what I find so fascinating about this is, you know, this is not, this whole concept of personal projects of yours and the big five, it's not, um, it's not prescriptive. Like, you need to be on a ketogenic diet, or you need to do this, you need to do it. It's a wonderful framework for looking at our humanity, how we kind of tick, and how we can use personal projects and develop ourselves in a way that will have real meaning to us. And what I've, and my children, uh, fortunately some days and unfortunately other days, you know, they're constantly being quote, educated by me about all these things. But one of the things they love is, is this framework because, you know, I think a lot of young people don't have a framework for how this business sort of works under yes. the surface, you know, and they are, they truly are joyous about, you know, this kind of framework of personal projects, meaning what their biogenic personality is and, and all that. Um, and I'll tell you, I think anybody listening to this with children, how, how ubiquitous is it that, you know, we talk about how, 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 how is it you are my kid? I mean, you are so different. And, you know, these biogenic tendencies come out like crazy. My son went to the Naval Academy, uh, his score on conscientious is ironically, and which is why he didn't care for the military to put it mildly, it is probably about 10 percentile. I mean, whenever his, whenever he comes home, his room, it, it immediately descends into chaos and a mess. And there's <laughs> nothing that on the planet, no enticements under any circumstances that I can do to change that, you know, just so. not ship shape. No, he's not ship shape about that, but he is about other things, but my goodness. Yeah. So it plays out at the dinner table and yeah. it's now, instead of previously, I would have seen that as something to fix. I see these things as something to embrace and, and, and engage with in a yes. way that I, I just didn't see before. That's what I mean by a framework, you know? Yes. Uh, yeah. So what are your thoughts then about, we've talked about authenticity and where, where, you know, as, as we mentioned earlier, I think before we started, you know, the burnout issue in medicine, um, you know, and, and sort of overall misery level is quite high. And a lot of that, I think, is driven by the modern world, you know, and the email and all the expectations and the overwhelm and all that. But what role, you know, if any, do you think paying attention to our, you know, our biogenic traits and meaning and personal projects or lack thereof can play a role in the development of burnout and sort of existential angst that can occur 
you know, uh, over the course of a career as one goes along? Yeah, it's, it's a vital question. Um, and, and I think that it, it goes to the whole notion of self-compassion. Uh -huh. That um, if you, th th there's a, a sense that when your projects enjoin you to act in ways that make you act out of character, and you're you're feeling burnt out. You're you're a very conscientious surgeon, and yet because of COVID and all sorts of other things, the everything is weighing in on you, uh -huh. and, and you don't know where to go. You, the culture is such that you're not really that inclined to talk to other people. Um, if there is somebody with whom you can have an empathetic conversation. Maybe along the lines of not what type are you, but what what are your what are your core projects right now? Mm -hmm. And to what, me, what matters to you? What yeah. matters? And it seems to me that the cure to burnout is is to find sustainable core projects in your life. Yes, you may yes. have wonderful core projects, but if they're not managed, I talk about a meaning manageability trade off. Your life may be oozing with meaning, but you can't get anything done because they're too aspirational. You know, bless your heart, you want to save the world. Bless your heart, you want to save every patient, all 16 of them who were added to your roster before you even knew they were coming. There's a manageability trade-off there where you may yeah. just not be able to do that. So it gets to being able to identify which of your core projects are sustainable. And there are ways of doing that with therapeutic intervention with counseling psychologists or maybe coaches or clinicians or psychiatrists. Um, but I, I think that a compassionate friend, a compassionate spouse, who is aware of this framework, who mm -hmm. asks you seriously, Michael, what matters to you right now? Now, right. we've known each other, what, 28 minutes. But I sure know that family matters a hell of a lot. Yeah. And yeah. I would want to know, so what? Yeah, the term project is a little bit too busy for me, yeah. even though right. I coined it, but it's, it's a bit too busy. Um, because I think the pursuit of core projects um, is estimable, important, but boy, if it if you have adopted a narrow mindset where all you're driven to is that accomplishable project, and it's a big one, you may have to start loading back unloading some of those aspirational pursuits. And that demands a really loving, compassionate conversation with those that, that mean something to you in your, in your life, be it a, a professional colleague or, or a, a spouse or a, a child who's old enough to engage with. And boy, right. I find that even, um, even my 15-year-old um, grandson, um, you can have discussions 
of course with, with kids yeah. you don't yeah. you don't say you know what what is the cross impact matrix that you would envisage between your your mom <laughs> and your granddad and and your best friend but you say is that hard and if yeah. it, if it's yeah. hard what's really hard about it right. i'll tell you a time when i had something that was really hard and um, and this is what i did and so it's it's what i don't like michael is getting parents who will um, say, okay, I've learned that you're an introvert. And so here is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the school and make sure that you have a quiet space and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. That's loving and good and thoughtful. Intentional. But, Intentions. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Not helpful. But maybe not. I mean, maybe, but it's unlikely to be frank. And I, I think that it is part of a longer discussion. And I think our discussions are too short nowadays. I think that um, if you realistically look at how much time do you actually spend in conversations, let's say with your family, about what really matters to them, um, you may have had years of preventing that ever happening because you don't want to get too serious because you're a fun family, um, because you're busy, you know, you got this, Thing you have to go to tonight and oh, I got homework dad. Um, but allowing and creating a space in which you can discuss these things. Sometimes you have to be creative. I found with my son growing up that um, the best place to discuss what really matters to you was playing hoops outside. Shooting hoops. So you know boom 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 swish boom 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 swish. So do you have a girlfriend? Boom boom swish. And I wouldn't sit him down in the kitchen and say, do you have a girlfriend? But no, because that, that's, that's interrogation. It comes up naturally exactly. in the context of something else. Exactly. Yeah. But when there's six swishes, of course, that's always him uh, scoring. Um, <laughs> then uh, particularly after he hits a equivalent of a three-point play, a lot can be revealed. No, that's right. And it comes out naturally then. You've hit on something that is so crucial here. And, and, so it's a combination of the modern world and the nature of our profession. So we go into medical school, then residency, and you're running hard and fast. Yeah. And yeah. that busyness becomes sort of like the status quo and, and even an addiction uh, to some extent. And it's a wonderful foil to avoid the very conversations you're talking about, you know, uh, it, it, they're uncomfortable. They feel sort of whatever, and you can run an entire family and life on a certain, you know, just above the water, like a plane, you know, one of those things skirting the top of the water without really knowing even some of your family members and what their true inner workings are in there and what matters to them and what they care about. And yes. certainly I was absolutely, you know, complicit in this uh, arrangement through no fault of my own yeah. uh, earlier on. And it only was when I started driving my daughter to school and learning about her through that forced time in the car, much yeah. like the hoops, that I started to see her as not just a kid that's, you know, going to school and, you know, I'll go to the swim meet, whatever, but as a human being with a com complex set of ways of seeing the world and everything else that were v v violently different than mine, you know, at yeah. times. <laughs> and uh, it was really quite remarkable. And, and that, that has played out beautifully for me uh, in terms of having that white space that you're talking about to be able to 
have those conversations. What matters to you? And also for myself to be flexible enough to be okay with what matters to them. It's not my agenda. It's not, you know, it's not my thing. And it's, it's really powerful. And I feel like so many of us, you know, the world of medicine, we, we feel isolated because, you know, you, you're in a, you're in a certain position, you have to perform, you don't want to reveal, you know, blah, 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 you know, you're struggling or whatever. And so that tendency towards isolation, I think that just plays out. And, you know, by the time you're 50, you know, you haven't really sat and talked to people about what matters to you in a deep way as a human being and what you want your life to unfold as. And, and uh, that's why I think groups are a place for physicians to go to talk about these things and actually do the sort of interrogation of themselves as to what matters, because they may not even have really thought about that, you know, correct. And it's a tragedy. It's just a tragedy. And, you know, one of the speaking to exactly to what you're talking about, the Mayo Clinic in 2007 did a study at the, of their physicians and burnout. And one of the strongest predictors of burnout was if the physicians could spend about 20% of their time on something that mattered to them. Mm-hmm. All right. Then that reduced the burnout rate much, much, much more way huge reduction from like 50 something to 25% or something. But the key there, and, and this is a, what you're alluding to, too, is the pressure and forces of the external world and the demands and all the stuff we're facing now that we didn't face 30 years ago. You know, it takes a wall, uh, like a serious gate to prevent that to, from uh, drowning those things that matter to you. You know, and that's where your flourishing will come from. Does am I making sense to you? Is this? Yeah, um, I wasn't aware of that of that particular study. It's sort of it's really intriguing. Um, I guess the layperson would see a surgeon as having so much meaning in her life that it's hard to imagine a more meaningful profession and saving people's lives and doing good and exercising right. skill. And so I would be just fascinated to find out what were those meaningful projects mm-hmm. to which they aspired and for which they felt that they were precluded or excluded or it was simply impractical to pursue. So it I'd love just to- just happens by default. By the demands of, of yes. the modern world. I mean, yeah. it, it's a, it, it just happens slowly, like a slow downward spiral, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. so then, you know, taking care of patients just can end up becoming sort of another burden, you know, yes. uh, and, and loses it. And the patients become just a gallbladder instead of- Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, so l- let's say, you know, members of our, you know, our listeners say, they're th- oh, this big five sounds interesting. What- what would you recommend? So you go, problem I have with, you know, people I work with is saying, you know, we should take the test because, you know, they'll take the test to look at it and then they'll shelve it or they'll see something they don't quote like, uh, yeah. and you know, it's upsetting. And how, you know, do you recommend people take the test? And if so, what are the caveats around that? You know, yeah. uh, how this do you really, frame it? Really nice timing. Uh, that, um, for the last three years, um, I and, and Adam Grant at um, uh, Penn and um, Ray Dalio, who initiated this whole endeavor of uh, the founder of Bridgewater Associates and 
Um, well, let me just let me just say it. I mean, I I'm yeah. I'm running with the big dogs here today. I mean, we are in this podcast. <laughs> Holy mackerel! <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Um, Ray is a fairly uh, fairly influential fellow. Yes, he has been like you, fascinated about um, personality for many years. And he was drawing from some of the personality literature, including the Myers-Briggs, which he loved. And he asked me and, um, and Adam Grant to, um, to critique what was going on there because Ray is constantly for improvement, constantly. Yes, improvement. Yes, yes. And I recommended that he switch um, to a big five orientation. And we were subsequently engaged in a long, still continuing, um, procedure for developing a free um, personality test that subsumes the big five, but also includes traits that Ray and Bridgewater and, and Adam and I felt were really crucial to go beyond sort of the Myers-Briggs type of, of approach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All the while, Ray has never abandoned his admiration for Myers-Briggs. I should point that out. Right. And so we developed and it's now available and, and your listeners can, can um, Google Principles You. So Ray has written a book called Principles. Right. It's a fabulous book. Yeah. Fabulous book. yeah. Fabulous Principles book. You is a series of, is a, is a personality test um, that is more expansive than the big five. Um, all you need to do is to um, uh, search for, for it. It's free. It provides immediate feedback. It recommends ways in which you can begin conversations about the things we've been discussing today. And what's exciting to me is that we're currently working, it's one of the reasons why I'm not doing interviews, is that we're, <laughs> we're currently um, incorporating personal projects as the next stage of providing feedback to individuals. Beautiful. So Beautiful. I would, uh, if any of your members are interested in, in um, doing dry runs of their personal projects and so on, um, I urge them to leave a message at the Principles You site. And um, uh, it also gives you the capacity, <coughs> excuse me, on the trait side of plotting out your results with other people in your group um, and uh, analyzing where you may find problems and conflicts and, and so on and so forth. So they may want to try it out and- uh, Oh, fa fantastic. This is just so wonderful. Yeah, because he was a big proponent of really understanding other people at Bridgewater. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and they, they use that stuff extensively, you know, to really hone in on that, so. Exactly. Yeah. So it's yeah. a nice note to end on is that uh, sure there is, is something actually practical that you can turn to. But as I keep <laughs> kept saying to Ray, this is the beginning of a conversation. Right, right. The end of the conversation. Not the end. It's the and developmental the projects state. And coaching and so on will take another, I suspect, another six months or a year for it to get up on the on the site. But it's what we're working on literally at the moment. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Brian, uh, in all sincerity, thank you so much for your willingness to take this time, uh, and especially in light of the fact that you're not doing these things, so you can work on your personal project with Ray and, and Adam 
Adam Grant. And, and, with, uh, my, I mean, and with my wife in the garden. And with your wife in the garden, and you're out there Even enjoying that with her too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So really just splendid. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. And, and thank you All so right. much for inviting me. All right. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.